From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. This week, the new coronavirus, also called COVID-19, is spreading in Vermont. In Randolph, one medical official has been writing messages to his community about the virus. We've been publishing these messages as commentaries here at VT Digger. And they argue a fairly nuanced point, that this outbreak may become even wider than you're expecting. But that's still not a reason to panic about its potential effects. Just for the recording, could you just say your name and your role here? Josh White, and I am the chief medical officer here at uh, Gifford Medical Center and Healthcare. What does that mean exactly? What does a chief medical officer do? You know, two years ago, I would not have been able to answer that question myself. (laughs) Um, I am responsible for basically the medical activities that occur in Gifford, both the hospital and the clinic's oversight of everything from hiring doctors and nurse practitioners to the care they deliver to quality measures and how are we doing with our, uh, you know, colonoscopies to complaints Got it. and so everything in between. You're the top doctor. Kind of, yeah. Okay. That would be one way to think about it. Got it. So there's a lot of doctors in Vermont, a lot of medical officials. Not all of them are doing what you're doing in, in sort of writing these messages to the community and talking to people about how to conceptualize this virus. What, what's compelled you to do that in the first place? I guess there's two parts of it. One is that I actually have a background. A uh, former medical school classmate and I ran a field hospital in Haiti after the earthquake. So there is some background in, uh, I don't know if you'd call this a disaster, but in big public health situations where there is not a clear plan and you have to figure things out on the fly, such as you know, with a novel virus that uh, um, humanity has not experienced before, you know, and in that case, it was different, but managing it from a system approach with many, many people interacting with that system and their behavior has informed a lot of what I'm doing right now. At the same time, institutionally, right now, our biggest threat is uh, public panic. Like any given business or operations or a factory, there is a process by which you do things. And if you overload that system, it will slow to a stop and become non-functional. And so what we're considering right now is how do we handle this? And a lot of medical systems are actually fairly fragile. A great example is uh, if you consider an emergency department, the average emergency department, if you were to go in there right now, with no complaints, and the only thing you were to do is ask, I want to be tested for a coronavirus. And all they said to you was, no, it's not appropriate. We can't do that right now. And you left. That would take 20 minutes of processing. Mm-hmm. A dozen people arriving in our emergency department all at once with that request would slow the system to a stop. At the same time, people are not going to stop having heart attacks They're not going to stop hitting their heads. People are going to continue to require medical care. And so in thinking about the processes we have and caring for the people in this community, it quickly became apparent that we had to get control of the dialogue and not let entities that are surviving on clickbait or fear drive that behavior. So this in large, um, I see it as a service to our patients. This is a service to the the guy that is going to have a heart attack tomorrow. He can't have 30 worried well in the lobby of our waiting room, um, or he's not going to do as well. Sure. I I imagine media is only 
one part of this, though. What are other ways that you can kind of stem the risk of a panic taking hold here? Well, a lot of it is just when people understand what the situation is, when they have information in front of them that they trust and they understand the logic behind requests or directives, they tend to do better, you know. So this is a scary thing, you know. We're talking about a virus that came from a different country that people haven't experienced before, and we're talking about people dying. You know, we're looking at a stock market crash. It's normal and appropriate for people to be anxious and afraid. Um, And so subsequently, you need to provide them with some sort of structure to contextualize their own behavior. What's going to happen next is a natural question. Mm And so the impetus is on us to try to answer that question and tell people what we know, how they can contribute, how they can protect themselves. And uh, we're relying on our own staff and the community for a lot of this. Right now, this week in particular, it seems like we are in the middle of this sort of cascade of information about things like school closures, event cancellations, that sort of thing. And Even though this is in line, more or less, with what health officials have said all along is what was likely to happen, it still feels like a little bit of a reality check in terms of how this is going to affect people's day-to-day lives. How should people be absorbing that information? Uh, That's a tough one. And and our strategy thus far has been constant communication and constant reassurance. Overall context is really, really important. I've written about, uh, you know, things like relative risk. It's very easy to, you know, read a post by, you know, an epidemiologist that says, you know, worldwide there's going to be so many million deaths and uh, it's very easy to get anxious about that. But people need to remember the context in which they exist. And, you know, in terms of this virus, if you're 29 years old and you're healthy, um, your individual risk is very low and you can't forget that the reality that that person's talking about when an epidemiologist writes an article is not necessarily your reality in the moment. You also can't forget that you exist within a community. And uh, when we're looking at the panic behaviors that are getting reported all over, the buy-ups of uh, supplies, the uh, stealing of masks, uh, people wearing masks in public, it's really, really important to remember that You never hear stories and you never hear recounts of everyone for themselves, everyone freak out, and a good outcome. Because that's not how it works. Mm -hmm. Um, When you hear stories of crises in the past, it is people thinking clearly, solving problems, and working together. And that doesn't mean bad things don't happen. It just means that they're handled intentionally and not in a reactionary fashion. I do wonder... You know, it it seems like there's a balance to be struck here. I know that particularly this week, again, as people are getting all these announcements coming down, it does increasingly feel like there's a sense of high alert from a lot of our institutions. Um, And how should folks kind of balance this sense of alert, this goal of social distancing to sort of slow the spread, any potential spread of the virus with this idea that we, you know, should be kind of checking ourselves against what our individual risk is. Sure. So there are individuals for whom this is very high risk. And there are situations that keep me up at night. And a simple example is Gifford manages a retirement community and we have a nursing home. Hmm. 
what happens if and when this virus gets into that nursing home. And that's a big deal. Um, and as you may have read about in uh, Washington, that kind of thing is a catastrophe. Yeah. When we're talking about things like social distancing, those are strategies that are important and to be applauded because those will slow the spread of the virus. If you are, you know, healthy but infected and feeling fine, you not interacting with other people is going to slow this virus down. If everybody does that and we do things like cancel large events and we slow this virus down, it is going to take a longer time for that virus to reach Gifford's nursing home. That period of time is critical to us saving lives. And there's a concept, if you think about, you imagine a given healthcare system or a part of a healthcare system has a certain capacity. There are a certain number of hospital beds. There are a certain number of ER beds. There are a certain number of patients we can process in any time. If we slow this virus down, the surge of patients that we'll see will flatten. And it is less likely to extend beyond that capacity and for a shorter time period. And that's going to save lives. This is what people talk about when they, they use the term flattening the curve. That's Correct. what that means. Correct. At the same time, you don't want to be alarmist. If you're planning on a concert and it got canceled, uh, you need to understand that that is a good thing for a lot of people. In this community, there are a lot of elderly people, and I'm worried for them. And I'm worried about how we're going to take care of them. And if collectively as a community we can flatten that curve, they're going to do better. What are your worries? Um, the capacity thing. As a product of our hospital's critical access designation, we're currently at 25 beds, 25 inpatients that we manage. In emergency situations, we are allowed to extend beyond that, mm -hmm. but that's not what we normally do. And so if we have... 40 beds that are full of sick people. I don't have the normal medical staff to manage that. I don't have uh, the nurses for that. You know, if the schools close, nationwide 38% of nurses have kids that are school age. Hmm. What are they going to do when I need them? And so these are the conversations that we're having. How do we deal with that? And we're putting together plans to deal with that, but the public can make it easier by giving us more time and flattening the curve. We'll be right back. Just a quick message from our underwriters. Casella Waste Systems provides waste and recycling services for homes, businesses, and organizations throughout Vermont and the Northeast. With a focus on recycling sustainability and environmental protection, Casella ensures that proper collection, renewal, and disposal of discarded materials keep our communities clean while extending the value of your unwanted items. Fun fact, last year, Casella recovered over 2.4 billion pounds of recyclables. To learn more, visit casella.com or call 1-800-CASELLA. I'm curious if there are specific lessons from the work that you were talking about earlier that you've done in Haiti that would be applied to a situation like the one that we are looking at here? A lot of it is logistics. A lot of it is creative thinking and problem solving. An example might be that if we have to extend beyond our normal capacity, are we going to do things like close half of a, a clinic elsewhere and bring that staff here and have them perform other jobs? So your primary care physician may serve as a hospitalist here in the hospital taking care of people with this illness if we reach that need. 
And that was the same kind of thing that we ran into in Haiti, where you're faced with a situation where there's not a clear answer. You don't have the normal supplies for that, so you figure it out. You can't be paralyzed with indecision because the... uh, you know, the downside um, to not figuring it out is uh, poor outcomes. And collectively, as an institution, we're not going to let that happen. And so those kind of situations, although in a markedly different environment, those lessons are serving well. You talked in one of your messages to the community about, you gave the example of toilet paper, about Mm -hmm. how if people panic, they're going out and buying toilet paper, but there's no specific reason related to this virus that, that that would be necessary. But it was kind of acknowledging that people do want to exert some feeling of control over the situation as it is right now. If people shouldn't panic, what should they do that might kind of give them a feeling that there's some proactive step that they're taking here? So for the average citizen in the community, even if you're lower risk, pay attention to the information coming from reputable sources, the social distancing kind of thing. Consider, you know, maybe it's not a good idea to hold the event that you were planning, you know, the neighborhood party or the gathering of your friends. Maybe it's not a good idea right now to engage with so many other people because in actually not performing those actions, it is a positive contribution to the community. Considering, you know, what are truly your needs. There are reasonable things for people to be buying up in reasonable amounts. You know, we've had elderly patients that are looking at their prescriptions. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you have high blood pressure, it is a reasonable thing to ask for a few more weeks of that. Because if you can get a few more weeks of that, you may not have to go out into the community and you're going to do a better job of protecting yourself um, from contracting this illness. But that's a far cry from buying 48 rolls of toilet paper. Sure. In terms of limiting the spread here, I think you acknowledge this in, in one of your messages that this is the time of year when respiratory illness is pretty common anyway. Everybody has their cough or their sneeze or their fever here and there. I think there's still some confusion among Vermonters about what rises to the level of suspicion that something might be more serious. And then if that's the case, what to do about it? Who should their first call be? That falls into a couple of different categories. Anything that you would have considered potentially an emergency or cause for concern two months ago, that's still the same. You know, if you fall and hit your head, you know, and you're on blood thinners or you passed out, you should probably be seen. And so none of that has changed. Okay. As far as respiratory illnesses and such go, it's well known that a large percentage of people that develop coronavirus, nothing is really going to happen to them. Mm -hmm. It may be annoying. You may have a cough. It might keep you up at night. You're maybe going to have the sniffles, but that's going to be about it. If you fall into that category and you're young and you're healthy, understand that there's not a medication for you. We're not going to admit you. And you do have the potential to clog up the system. So your best option is probably to stay home. Now, if you've got other conditions, maybe you're a severe asthmatic, or maybe you're older, maybe you've got emphysema, and you get a fever and a cough, we know you're higher risk. And uh, we do want to see you and keep an eye on you because that's the group of people that we worry about. Those people can have a little bit higher threshold to at least call in and ask. 
And then if something occurs where you're severely short of breath or you're developing chest pain or something along those lines, then definitely come in. Don't stay home. The resources that we're marshalling and the increase in our capacity that we're working on is for those people. Even the people who are relatively low risk, who the recommendation is is really just to stay home, I think there's still concern among a lot of people that aside from complete self-quarantine, that if those people just need to go to the grocery store or do the things that people do routinely in their daily lives, that they could be unknowingly, in a lot of cases, encouraging the spread of the virus. Is that something that you think is maybe an overhyped concern in this case? Uh, It's a real thing, uh, but it's also unavoidable. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not in a position where we can all go be hermits. That right there is why this, this, so just a couple of hours ago, the WHO declared this a pandemic. And the reality that this virus can exist in a person and not make them sick, but still be shed a lot, makes it nearly impossible to control. So there are lots and lots of people in the world right now that are walking around with coronavirus that feel just fine Mm -hmm. and infecting other people. So what are we left with? Well, uh, we have to be as reasonable as we can. Um, We can't all move into caves. But, you know, if you need to go to the grocery store, don't take your whole family. Hmm. Maybe you go on slightly off hours where you're less likely to interact with other people. And you do things like you cancel non-essential sorts of activities. Um, The reality is all our lives are going to change for a while. And this is going to be weeks, if not months. The last commentary I saw coming out of the CDC was talking about eight weeks. And that's probably eight weeks from when you see the first case in your region. And so here in central Vermont, we haven't even started yet. And uh, it may go on even longer than that. So your vacation may be interrupted. Your concert may be interrupted. um, But collectively, that's the reality that we live in. To give people maybe even a more specific idea of what's coming down the road, it, it seems like this week there was this sort of theme of social distancing. We we heard all these announcements about things that were going to be closed or canceled. What kind of themes or patterns do you expect we might see next week or the week after that, the very near future? One of the things that's going to happen in the near future that's really important for people to understand is that manufacturers are going to catch up with the demand for testing. Um, Because this was a brand new virus, for obvious reasons, we were unprepared to test for it. Rightly or wrongly, we're not there yet. Hmm. As of yesterday, I haven't checked the uh, website recently, uh, the Vermont Department of Health had only performed 41 tests for coronavirus. And that's because they have a limited supply and they have to be judicious about whom they test. Mm -hmm. So they're testing high-risk people and people that are quite ill. It's a near certainty that there are a lot of Vermonters running around who feel fine, who have not been tested, but do in fact have coronavirus. When the demand catches up for testing and manufacturers release enough tests, you're going to see a big spike in the number of cases in Vermont. We're going to go from, you know, one case to perhaps several hundred cases in a period of a couple of weeks. Okay. It's really, really important to understand that nothing changed. These people were already out there. We have simply defined them. They were there. And there is utility in knowing roughly how many people are out there and where they are. Because in hospitals like this, if I know it's in the community, that gives me a timeline for when I'm likely to see the surge of sicker patients. So it's important to do that. 
at the same time, it's important for people to understand that this is a, a steady progression, but nothing changed in the moment you see that sudden spike in cases. What should people be thinking or doing at that point? Should they be changing anything or they should continue doing what they've been doing up to this point? Continue what you're doing, what you're doing. Understand that we are just able to test for it when that happens, um, when clinicians can start to test much more freely. You know, that is not a point that anybody should panic. It was the same as yesterday. Now you can just see the numbers. So that will happen. After that, it's going to get into a given community and it's going to spread. Um, there's going to be a lot of people in that community that uh, are carrying that virus, and some percentage of a given community is going to be ill. By community, do you mean like a geographic area or, or a population demographic type? So in this case, um, the most pertinent definition would be an area that a given health entity is responsible for. Hmm. So when I think communities, I think, all right, how many patients is Gifford Medical Center going to be responsible for? And so those are the numbers that I'm thinking about when uh, I'm thinking about capacity and how is our hospital going to sustain that. And some percentage of the patients or individuals in this community are going to carry coronavirus. And based on the epidemiologist data, a lot of us are going to carry it. And then because it is a brand new infection and no one has any immunity, it's going to happen all at once. We're going to have a lot of sick people all at once. We already know who most of those people are going to be, and they're older, um, and they're already ill. And so we're preparing for that. At the same time, there is going to be a lot of challenges for a lot of people. You know, if you're a small business owner, you know, and suddenly your employees have to figure out what to do with their children because school has been canceled, that's going to be a problem, even if no one is clearly sick. And so you're going to see a lot of side effects along those lines. So thinking about workforce considerations is going to be important. This will persist after it's widespread in a given community for a couple of months, and then there will be a significant percentage of the population with some level of immunity, and it will start to die down. This illness is infectious enough that it is probably going to become endemic, although I anticipate, well, it's hard to say what's going to happen in the future. It's going to depend on how fast it mutates. You know, It could become like another influenza where mm. we see it cyclically, um, but because people have had it before, there's some level of immunity, and uh, it sort of fades into the background as another viral respiratory illness. Do you think we'll see deaths in Vermont? Certainly. Yeah. yeah. We have plenty of older people. The numbers are clear. But, again, context is important. We see deaths in Vermont from influenza every single year. We have deaths in this hospital. And some of those situations are much scarier because influenza uh, also kills young people. This one is a bit more palatable. Uh, it would appear that the, the mortality rate is higher for coronavirus, although that's hard to tell. But it's not killing kids, so we can be thankful for that. Any other big picture things that people should be keeping in mind as they hear this information and, and think about it going forward? I would not think of this situation as unique. It feels new and different, but our current global reality is that we have kind of become a global community. People move around frequently and quickly. 
And we have had tinges of this throughout the past several decades. You know, SARS, the anthrax scare, H1N1, MERS. Diseases move around a lot faster than they used to. And it's a product of how we all live. This is not going to be the last time this kind of thing happens. The hope will be that this is going to educate the globe and we're going to build much stronger public health systems to manage it. But we will hear about this kind of thing on a periodic basis. And I fully expect, you know, within our lifetimes, we'll get another virus from somewhere or another bacteria from somewhere um, because that is how we live. I think that will uh, help people consider, you know, their lives, the impact on the globe, how we all behave, and what that means. Got it. Thanks, Dr. White, for your time. I really appreciate it. At VT Digger, we've launched a special site with all our coronavirus coverage at vtdigger.org slash coronavirus. It includes a tracker with the latest number of patients that have been tested or found positive that updates live using state health department data. It also links to the latest resources and recommendations from state and federal health authorities, plus all of our recent full stories and a live blog of other quick updates related to the outbreak. You're listening to The Deeper Dig, a weekly podcast from the VT Digger newsroom. Search for it and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, and you'll get new episodes as soon as they land. We used music this week by Blue Dot Sessions. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger newsroom. Have a nice weekend.